computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today we welcome cybersecurity expert Laura Bell to the show to talk about how she has taken her expertise and career in being an ethical hacker and how she's turned that into helping companies now be proactive around their cybersecurity and making sure their online environments are secure and being and bringing some best practice tackling these major challenges. We touch on AI and the impact that's having, um, and also what can individual companies do in a proactive sense to get on top of security measures and also bring an intelligent performance mindset to it where you're not overspending, you're not over prioritizing, and you're also making sure, but, but you've got that kind of fine distance between the right amount versus uh, too much or, or too little. Look forward to joining this conversation very much. Thank you so much for being here. Let's dive straight in. First of all, I'd love to hear your take on what does intelligent performance mean in your kind of domain? I love the phrase intelligent performance because we we see a lot online. You know, I, I follow a lot of things outside of security. I, I restore things and I, I look at psychology and all sorts of things. One of the things you see out there every day is you'll see a post about somebody who's doing, I'm doing 10x of this or I'm going to run 16 marathons this year or whatever. It's this idea that we've got this huge level of performance. And in these cases, often it's all the time. It's at that level. Let's do it right now. And that's exhausting. It's exhausting just to read it, let alone to actually do it. For me, <laughs> intelligent performance is about choosing where you invest your energy so that you can sustain yeah. for a long period of time. Now, in security, we're not the most glamorous folk at a party. That's okay. We get that. Our job is to keep your data <laughs> and your people and your system safe. And that doesn't mean that you run around every day going, hey, the world is on fire. You should feel bad. Your code is ugly. That's not the case at all because, you know, there's threats around us all the time. In security, intelligence performance is about knowing when to respond, when to change your behavior or your tooling so that when things go wrong, which sadly they do, that you've got that energy to go and do it there and then rather than being burnt out and just over it all. Interesting. And I imagine security is one of those things where you don't want to underspend. It's a bit like insurance, but it's very tempting too. And then sometimes companies might get smashed if they, you know, don't that if they underinvest. I know I work in the school space, and there's a lot you know, from a reputational perspective. I think um, they they get hammered. They also get smashed by cyber as well in terms of you know people trying to hack them. So, yeah, how do you navigate that where people are perhaps willing to open up their if like they they don't want to look cheap when it comes to security and but also they're they're also like. Yeah, it's like an unlimited bucket. They could just keep pouring money into it, I would imagine. Uh, absolutely. And I, you know, I think we need to be really careful when we say investing in cybersecurity that often we think that that's dollars and cents, it's, it's money. But actually, a lot of that money that we spend is to replace the thing we have less of, and that's time. So you can go one way or the other. If you're a smaller organization, you don't have a huge budget, your investment in security will be hours in your day. If you're a larger organization, maybe you do have a formal spend, then it's going to be meaningful tools that help you scale up what your team can do. But the thing that we have to remember is it's kind of like buying a gym membership. I've owned many gym memberships. I have not participated in gyms very often. 
I feel like I had the, you know, the sense of fitness and well-being because I owned a gym membership. But that doesn't mean that I was actually healthy or fit. Um, yeah. And it's the same with security. You could spend a lot of money and buy all the right names and have them on the right list in the right places. But if you're not tuning them, if you're not looking after that tooling, if you're not making use of it and really getting the value then it's almost a false sense of security. So we have to be really careful that we invest the right amount of effort alongside the, the money we're spending. So how do you like how do you approach it in terms of how do companies get it right? What's the is there a mindset or is there an approach, kind of some principles that you bring to the bring to it in terms of navigating this? Have you ever planned breaking into your own house? I should have tried the other night. So, and it was harder than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, security starts with the same kind of thinking that you would put in place if you needed suddenly to, you know, get into your house because you've lost your keys or you've forgotten them yeah. or something. It's the idea of, okay, I have in the physical world, a house will be an actual physical space, walls, doors, windows, and things. Or in your organization, you have your computer systems, you have your software that you've built, you have all of those things there together. And if you're breaking into your house, you're trying to find a weakness. You're trying to go, okay, if I was going to get in there, I could find the spare key or I could break a window or I could crawl under the floor like a mole person and pop up through the floorboards, whatever your, you know, your style is. And in the digital space, we're doing the equivalent there. So if we yeah. look at what's valuable in our organization, whether it's money or data or it's political access or influence or whatever it is that drives your attacker, then looking at your environment and going, okay. What can I do to get to that? Now, if you're trying to defend your organization, you have to take that same mindset. How would somebody attack us? Would they be trying to do? And if you can think about why they'd want to do it, you can work backwards to where your vulnerabilities might be. And that's how you start prioritizing. Because nobody wakes up in a day as an attacker and goes, you know what, I'm just going to break stuff today and cause chaos. Well, most of them don't. Most are there to get a job done. And so if you can preempt that by spotting what their job might be, what they're trying to steal or influence in some way, then that's the best place you can possibly start. Interesting. Tell me, though, naturally, you see these big headline organizations, you know, the likes of Latitude Finance, Optus, especially I think it was last year or the year before, I forget now. Big organizations you'd expect to have it covered, massive security budgets. Where, how, I'm just intrigued, like, when you see examples like that, is it because they just got lazy? Do they miss something obvious? Was it they're just unlucky? And Or if you're just big, then you're just a bigger target. Can small companies, how, how can they possibly kind of compete with kind of that level of resource? Yeah, and I think there's a few things to unpack from those breaches. And I'll do it as kind of plainly as I can, because I think it's really important that we try and intentionally be very straightforward with security. It doesn't need to be complicated. Okay, so some things contributed to those situations. One of the things is our regulation hasn't caught up yet. Our regulations are a bit confusing. So we have minimum data retention requirements. So if you've got audience who are in the financial space, you'll be familiar. We have to keep our records for seven years or whatever. Yep. But there's no maximum. And so what we tend to do is we err on the side of caution and we go, okay, well, we have to keep for at least seven years, so we'll just keep it forever. And over time, if you think about how much data your organization processes each year, it adds up and adds up and adds up. And over time, you get to a breach then and you've got not just the data you needed for operational purposes and for legislation purposes, but all this extra stuff that you've just been keeping because, well, just in case or because you weren't sure if it's safe to get rid of it. So one of the things that we can do in all size organizations is only keep what we need to keep and for the period we need to keep it for. 
Now, if the law hasn't defined a maximum time, it's okay to say, all right, we know we've met our minimums from the law. We're going to decide our maximum and just delete it, which sounds terrifying. But actually, it's much easier to protect something that's much smaller. So start Mm. there. Another thing to unpack from those is organizations are complex. You know, you may start a small business. You know, I have a small business of my own and everything's straightforward. You can see all the moving parts and it's, you you know, if something's going wrong, you know where to go and you know where to fix it. As your organization grows and you would put layers of people in and you put additional systems and the scope of what you're doing grows, it gets harder and harder and harder to get that visibility, to get Mm. that kind of understanding of where security might lie. And so when you're a large organization, if you look at a telecommunications company, for example, they often grow by acquisition. So they will buy other companies and use their software. Now, that means you've not just got to secure the thing you built, but you've inherited All of these other things. Uh, One of the telcos I've worked with recently, they have 1,800 applications that they've inherited from other places. That's that's mind-blowing. Even with a big team, you wouldn't know where to begin. And keeping visibility will be really very hard. So, you know, I'm sure lots and lots will come out of Optus and Latitude Financial in the coming months and years as to what we can learn directly from their circumstance. But for ourselves, the key things are to not keep your data unless you actually need it. So minimum data and then just make sure you've got visibility as your organization grows, because it's really difficult to get it back once it's lost. Got you. So I'm trying to think about the audience on this, you know, would typically attract a range of business owners, small to medium sized enterprises typically. Usually, professionals in this space, just given yeah. the kind of the tech leaning element of, of what we do. Tell me, you've just launched the the one hour app sec. The idea of just kind of bringing just bringing some attention and focus every kind of two week sprint to kind of an, an idea to unpack this. Tell us what's that all about in terms of what's the what's the thinking behind that more than more than anything. Absolutely. So, security is like any other big, slightly negative looking issue. And, you know, I'm, I'm really transparent about this. I literally spend time every day going, hey, this is how your organization or people or data could be harmed. And that's not a happy place. And so it can feel big and overwhelming. And when we talk about cyber threat, it could be like this big amorphous ephemeral thing that we have no idea what it is or where it's coming from or how long it's going to be there. It's, it's a nightmare. But there's other issues that we're familiar with that are like this. Let's look at the environmental impact of our lives and climate change. If you look at that as a whole, it's horribly overwhelming. You've no idea where to begin. But one of the things that we do as individuals and as small organizations is we try and do small changes consistently. So, you know, I'll buy less bottles by taking a reusable bottle with me or I'll recycle all of my soft plastics at home. Now, in security, we're trying to turn that big amorphous security problem into the same sort of manageable steps. So 60 minutes every two weeks is very little in the the span of what you achieve in your company every two weeks. You do a tremendous amount of things. 60 minutes is minor. I think I've wasted more than 60 minutes this week so far on social media. So, you know, we can all we can all find the time. So we are providing guidance to make it really easy for organizations all around the world. So there's no barrier to entry on this. Anyone is welcome. Uh, sign up to our little newsletter. And it really is small. It's, you know, 500 words maximum. And in it, we give you a set of things, a set of activities with little guiding videos and templates so that you can do security in 60 minutes every sprint and make a little step forward. And the idea being that if there's 30 million people in the world right now who build software, give or take, 
And, you know, all of our organizations rely on software in some form. But if we all do a little tiny bit, then the, the aggregate change, the changeover, all of us is huge. So mm. that's what we're trying to do, turn this big, scary problem into something little you can do consistently that's not going to feel like much effort at all. That's super, super cool. And you're right in terms of the uh, like the big the big output, or the, you know, if you look at cumulatively impact, well, how that how it makes a difference. So, just want to change the conversation just a little bit, Laura, because I think there's something really fascinating in in your story. So, as I understand it, you you kind of came from an ethical hacker background, and this is kind of where you've developed this this, this focus now. And we're kind of lucky that you've come to the light side rather than the dark <laughs> side. So, just tell us about what had you choose this path opposed to perhaps some of the other opportunities of you know hacking latitude financial because I, I imagine selling this data can be quite a lucrative exercise on the other side i'm sure it would be uh, orange isn't my color so I, you know in all honesty it was a fashion choice but no in more serious terms i i started out as a software engineer when i was 16 right. writing taxation systems in the uk it wasn't very glamorous and I've done all sorts of things from real-time radiation monitoring software in Switzerland for CERN. And I ended up in the government um, and doing counterterrorism and counter online harm to children. Now, when you work in that environment, you're working alongside the armed forces, you're working alongside intelligence, and you are trying to do something that has a very measurable impact for individuals and groups and populations. You become very focused on your why, on, on your reasoning. Now, being wealthy for me is I can go to the supermarket and buy ice cream and a bottle of wine and not look at the price tag. Like that, that for me is the absolute dream wealthy state. But my happy state, what drives me is the idea that I can make things better, that I can help people. Now, being a, a penetration tester and ethical hacker is a very interesting way to, to be part of that. You can, you know, safely find vulnerabilities in systems. You can have those hard conversations with, with someone and say, hey, look, this is a really big problem and we need to think about it in advance of a bad thing happening. And now I've migrated sort of to a hybrid. So half of me builds software and I work with high growth companies all around the world to help them build amazing technology. And I'm genuinely excited about what they're doing. And the other half is there to try and bring that security knowledge in so that we can make this amazing future really sustainable, really secure, so it can do all of those wonderful impacts that we're trying to achieve. And so just take us back to the government days briefly, where because that sounds kind of the sneaky beaky stuff, which sounds really interesting. Maybe it, it sounds really sexy, whether it was or not, it's probably a whole different ballgame. But it's just in terms of in terms of that, what were your kind of, if you apply like an intelligent performance perspective, what, what did you... Did they did they have it right? Were they completely overlooked? Do they you would ex expect those environments to be ultra secure? You know that kind of like, so oh. from a security perspective, it's very very complex and very very mature, as you would expect. But I think there's a, actually an angle to intelligent performance that I definitely found my feet in there, and that's when you're doing counterterrorism or any sort of you know prevention of harm in the physical sense. You know people mm. are going to be hurt or killed, then. That sustainability of your own focus and your own energy becomes really crucial and where you choose to pick your fights, which battles you choose to, to pick. Now, I was in a very operational role. That means that when something was happening in the world, that you call the right people in. Right. And that meant being prepared to deploy to war zones and, and being really on call and on demand for strange hours of the day. Now, you cannot maintain that pace long term. And as a result, we would have very, very 
clear definitions of when we would ramp up, when we would hold focus and hold that energy out, and then when we would recover and come back. So there was a lot in there about, you know, making sure that to be the best team we could be doing that big mission that we're looking at how we maintain all the pieces of it not just the technology which was very important but also the people around the outside making the decisions and and making those things happen right so that's really taking a strong understanding about performance i actually really love that because it's bringing a lot of almost a sporting focus Mm. because athletes really definitely understand performance in terms of peak performance and i think it's always fascinating especially having you transition to being an entrepreneur Usually performance looks like work as hard as you can for 90% of the time, don't sleep and just keep going. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's wild what how that compares to like an elite athlete where they spend mm. 30% of the time training, 60%, 70%, also 60% typically it's actually in recovery. Mm. And then it's 3 to 5% of actual, you know, competing or, you know, really really pushing it. And I think that kind of resonates to what you're talking about in the, you know, the one hour set, right? It's just really putting that back on the priority list some degree. It doesn't have to be your 100% attention, but, you know, an hour or so, two hours a month, so 24 hours a year, it's it's nothing in the scheme of things, but a bit of attention like resting more or getting a massage if you're a professional athlete makes the biggest difference. Absolutely. And you can look, there's an example in the medical world that I like to draw on because I think it's quite relevant. In hospitals, there's a lot of machines that beep. Look, bad things are happening. Bad things are happening. It's going to beep at you. Now, when you're exposed to that beeping all day long, as doctors and nurses are, you know, you get what we call in security alert fatigue. The idea that you just can't Mm. take any more alerts is just stop the beeping. And Mm. so the first thing we do is we press the mute button on something. Now, any time that you're under consistent pressure and you aren't able to kind of regenerate your energy to bring it back, to bring your focus back and you hit mute, that's when bad things happen. That's when bad things happen in hospitals. It's bad things happen in computer systems, in your organization. So making sure that you're only raising things when they're important uh, so that you know when to ramp up your energy and that you're taking time to recover and learn your lessons in between is super, super important. Interesting. I think that that also, well, actually, how do you apply that to being an entrepreneur? Uh, I have to be really mindful with it. I have two young daughters and I live in a three generation household. So like if you're looking for like the the stereotype Mark Zuckerberg 10x <laughs> entrepreneur, this is not me. We We have a small team. We get a lot done, but we have some really very tight boundaries in the company that I live and breathe as well as try and enforce. So we don't work more than 36 hours a week. We each take a wellness day each month, and that's a completely paid day off in addition to your leave. That is just so you can go and recharge. You don't have to go and do anything productive. You don't have to go and, you know, save the planet. You can just go and play video games if that's your jam. But just so you go and do something intentional just to get your energy back. And the other thing we try and do is, you know, They say in many circumstances, building a business is like a marathon done in a million sprints. And it really is. You've got to get up. You've got to hit your energy each day and you've got to get going. But for me, I find that my energy isn't the same all the way through the day. And so trying to be switched on for, you know, 50 hours a week is just not going to happen for me. I can be incredibly productive with the right structure to my day, with the right timing and with a really tight focus on what is important. And do I need to be doing this right now? So 
it's hard. I think it's the hardest job I've ever had. I wouldn't really know how to describe what I do to my mom anymore. She hasn't got a clue, but it's great. And it means that we're we're just shy of three years in. We're now helping 1,600 organizations in 78 countries. And that, for me, is a real testament to the power of the message that we that we have and the mission that we're on. You went through a major pivot. I was reading an article about you in the AFR earlier, and it, you lost, was it, 94% of your revenue during yeah. COVID. An absolute nightmare. And I'm sure a lot of business owners listening to this can relate to, you know, including myself, like it was... It was tectonic in terms of what happened. It really was. <laughs> yeah. And so what was the pivot in that? What was the thinking or what was the kind of, what led you into you know, safe stack as you know it now? Like how do yeah. you kind of weave those two lines? So prior to the, the major lockdowns in COVID, we were a consultancy. So I, to put it really kind of crudely, I was kind of like the Mary Poppins of security. So you've got a chaotic, small to medium sized company who needs to do security and they need to do it quickly. And they would call in someone like me and we come, we bring our bag of tricks. Absolutely. (laughs) All all the time. Always carrying a carpet bag, chimney lamps. So yeah, absolutely. Um, So me and my talking parrot would come in and we would come and fix everything and then move on to another organization. I did that around the world for some really very prominent, fast growing companies. But that's very, that's a very tight relationship and it's very in person. And so mm. COVID, when everyone started reassessing their priorities and nobody knew which direction it was going, security does tend to be one of the things people cut back on quickly, especially in smaller organizations, because, you know, security is very important. Absolutely. But if you look at a smaller organization, small to medium, there's 20 things that are going to kill your company and security isn't in the top three. So, you know, I'm I'm a pragmatist. So me and my co-founder, Erica, we sat around. We both had children and home loans and all of those things that you're not supposed to have when you start a, a product company and, and go on this adventure. And we said, well, let's see if we could do what we do as people in a software platform. What would it look like? And let's give it a shot. So we started building in the April of that year and we launched into market in the October and we haven't looked back, really. And what's the what's the key value? Probably sounds like you're now focused on actually training others. Is that is that the whole kind of yeah. essence of it? Yeah. So at the moment, historically, security is done very late in when we build software. So we kind of get to right. the end of building it, and then we check is the gate locked. We're trying to move security way earlier in the process and include not just those people who write the code, but everyone who's involved in it. So from the people who come up with the requirements through to the people who test, the people who do design. And by giving much in the same vein as one hour AppSec, by giving those skills to everyone in small ways and making it very practical, we're upskilling the security maturity of organizations who are building software who don't look like your typical, you know, large scale, mature organizations who have a team Mm. for this. It's helping teams be security sufficient for themselves. And the benefit of being proactive rather than our sugar is the gate locked. Is there is a significant commercial savings in that or is it more? I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, stopping the monsters from getting in and that's cool and all, but nobody's really motivated long term by fear. It just doesn't work. But if you look at it as a a smaller organization, you're often trying to sell to organizations much bigger than you. And, you know, many of us are going through ESG surveys at the moment because the big organizations care about that. Many of us go through security vetting when we try and sell to another company. And so this preparation that we can do in the younger companies 
It helps speed up that due diligence. It opens the doors to selling to organizations much bigger than yourself. Because when a big organization buys, the question they're really asking is, does this organization pose a risk to me as an organization, my Mm. data or my people? And if Mm. you can articulate, well, actually, we do all of these things that are going to lower that risk. And here's what we can show you. That's really positive. That can give them that comfort that it's not a high-risk endeavor to work with you. So Mm. we've seen it in action, high-growth companies ranging from 20 people upwards, selling to some of the biggest names on the planet and able to speed up that process or remove friction from it just by kind of getting some of the boring basics done in security and being able to communicate that in a consistent way that's not a lot of effort. Interesting. Yeah, I think we we found that quite recently just selling into a university where once we got to that, you know, the value proposition for the product was there. And then it got to the security guys. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, they were asking, you know, we were a very small organization at the time. And it was just like, man, what yep. are you talking about? And they, the length and the breadth of what they were requesting and the data management procurement, you're like, man, we've just hardly got a CRM, like, let alone, like, and, and yep. it wouldn't make any sense. Uh, yes, I think I see what you're saying. I hadn't really considered the, when you're trying to do that and, in, and interweave and, and what's you've been on both sides is that does that make your life better when you're in those bigger organizations too because you oh so much better small, yeah yeah as a security person our love our love language is spreadsheets we love sending out a 200 question <laughs> spreadsheet to someone just like you and saying hey prove everything in your entire life and yeah. if you don't have evidence then we don't <laughs> yeah there you go see i have been i've been the receiver and giver of that love oh, um, similar, you i get it is, right. yeah exactly so sorry for my people <laughs> and you know but for me you know, that's an expression of the complexity of what they're trying to manage. They don't have a nicer way to do this. They've got this horrible Mm. big puzzle that they've got to protect. And what I want to see is that younger, smaller organizations are able to compete side by side with the bigger ones. Because if our smaller ones can't get through this vetting, then our ecosystem loses all of the innovation that happens in smaller organizations. So we need to find an easier way to do security when you're small so that all of those innovations can survive and become the amazing things they need to be in the future. Yeah, it's interesting because I often think, you know, we look at the legal contracts again, which the big companies tend to lean back on. And I just go... What's the point? If you, if something goes wrong, you're just going to sue us and we'll just close the doors. No big deal. Like it really isn't. No, it's not a huge consequence. Yeah. Where I think they often think everyone else is a massive whale with yeah. huge resources, and a and a lawsuit is a big issue. And it's like, well, commercially speaking, it's not really for some companies. Um, so. Absolutely, I think we need to remember that the principles of security are the same when you're big or when you're smaller, but what we are able to do to achieve them is very different. And so we can't just say, hey, here's the playbook for security. It fits everyone. Off you go. We really have to look at each context and say, where is the risk in this? Where's the vulnerability? What has value? And how do we take steps that we can manage to hit those security requirements, to prevent bad things from happening and to spot bad things happening and respond to them quickly? So let's just take the conversation forward a little bit in terms of, you know, what's coming down the track, AI Mm -hmm. decimating you know, admin jobs, opening up, make, turning, you know, single entrepreneurs into, you know, better than whole, you know, massive individual, massive marketing teams in some regard. From a security space, what's what's coming? Is it evolving, getting better, harder? Like what's that? Is the AI question mark, as it were, does it open a, a whole new can of worms in that in that space? 
Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of issues emerging with security and AI systems. And I think, in all honesty, we're at the very start of our understanding of where these are, because it's moving very, very fast. Mm-hmm. What we do know, though, is some of the, in, in my space, in the security space, we've already seen the launches of initial guidance. So the the OWASP organization, which is a professional body for web application security, so software and the internet, they've just released uh, their first set of guidelines for securing large language models, so AI-based systems. Now, that's very fast turnaround for a professional body. Historically, we've been able to spend two or three years coming up with our guidance, and there's been this ramp-up time, but now we're having to move very, very fast. One of the big challenges with AI systems is In a standard piece of software, it's very linear. You know, you've got steps one, two, and three, much like a recipe. And if you put something in and it goes through steps one, two, and three, you know what's going to come out the other side. In an AI-based system, by the nature of what they are, you can put the same input in, and it may not follow the same steps each time. That, That model inside is dynamic, which means you can't always predict what comes out the other side. Now, the impact on that for security is a lot of our security controls are about us understanding all of the ways a system can behave and be used and then planning controls for it. But if we can't articulate or enumerate all of those pathways it's going to take, it becomes very difficult for us to predict what bad things can happen and then prevent them. So I think what we all need to do is firstly, always read your terms and conditions. There's some really gnarly terms and conditions coming out of software right now because they want to train their models. So I know nobody likes doing this, but if you can get the Cliff Notes version and check for changes, that's a good idea. Secondly, don't be putting any sensitive information up into a public AI system at this point. We don't have the controls over them to know where that data is going to end up. It doesn't mean don't use it, just be mindful of what you're sharing there. And thirdly, this is going to take collaboration for us to A, use it effectively, and B, secure it. So, you know, this isn't the time for the security community to come over here and have like a little cabal and do their thing, and then the marketing folks are doing something else. There's going to be a lot of us working together, making sure that we're understanding as fast as we are learning to use how to do the security side. Interesting. And so it sounds like, given the the variation, which is possible, that it's going to be Ultimately, it's going to be AI versus AI when it comes to security. Is that right? like the the ethical ethical it, AI versus the um, the non? It, it be. You know, the thing we have to remember about attack is security at its roots is a very, very old problem. And it's nothing to do with technology. It's to do with people. You know, if you have, say, mm. a shiny pop plant that I like the look of and I don't have it, I'm going to do whatever I can to get to that shiny pop plant and get it for me. Now, all we've changed from being cave people. Exactly. There we go. You got it. All we've changed from being cave people is that the, you know, the basics of society used to be our valuable thing, you know, food and yeah. shelter and warmth and tooling. And then we've changed technology over time to now the things of value are digital or their currency or there's something different. Now, we need to do is remember that our attackers just as able to use technology as we are. Just mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, if you wanted to break into your home, going back to our analogy from earlier the easiest tool to get the job done is to throw a brick through a window. That's exactly the same thinking that tech is going to have. So with Mm. AI developing quickly and able to help us assist us with tasks, then AI can definitely help on the attack side. But we need to be aware that we need to look at the things from our side, from this productive defensive side, with a bit of scrutiny, because our attackers are doing it at exactly the same time as a bit of a race happening. Yeah, right. And so outside of AI, obviously that's what's in the headlines at the moment. Mm-hmm. What else is 
what do people need to be on the lookout for in terms of security? What's coming down the track? I think one of the big pushes that's happening, and some of your audience may be doing this themselves, is we're moving away from the idea that all software that is being built needs a software engineer to do it. Now we can all go onto things like Wix, we can go onto Bubble, and we can put together components that's kind of like a giant online Lego set and build applications for ourselves. And that's really cool. And it's really empowering for our younger companies in particular, who maybe they don't have someone on team who can do that for them. Now, when you're using these tools, we have to remember that just because a big name company has built it, it doesn't mean that it hasn't got its own challenges. So taking an extra moment, whatever you're throwing together to build your business and to go, okay, what data is going into this? How long is it there for? What control do I have? Who's it being shared with? Asking those kind of questions can be really, really helpful. And always have a backup plan. So a lot of companies are getting acquired all over the place and they're changing owners. It may well be that your company that you bought from to start with you know, gets mm. bought by a bigger one. They change everything they're doing and you need to pull out. Don't be afraid to pull out of a tool you're using when it changes and it's no longer a safe place for you to be. If we're never prepared to leave a tool, it puts us at risk from whatever terms and conditions or changes in methodology that big provider has. That's a really interesting one. Like I, um, There's an online journaling app which I use on my iPad, which is, and I just saw they got, they got sold recently, found that had a massive exit. But it really made me think, you know, what you put in a journal can be quite sensitive. And there was no, unless I was Googling behind the scenes, there was no notification in the app that things had changed. And I was just like, wow, man, I, ha- I really hadn't stopped to think about what, you know, how that could potentially leave you exposed, their ability to then change T's and C's behind the scenes without your your knowledge. or And you do the, the simple update because you've just been doing that for a long time without too much consideration for okay, what's changed? So something which is so simple, very subtle from the outside, actually huge levels of complexity internally, potentially. So Absolutely. And I'm realistic. I know this friction in moving tools. It hurts. Nobody likes doing it. But you always have to be prepared to make that choice. You always have to know that you can stop and do something else. It's when we don't and when we continue without that scrutiny, without that thought, that we end up with a lot of data in a place being used in a way we hadn't expected. And Mm. understanding who the custodian of that data is that you've shared and how that changes is one of the most important things you can do as either a business leader or as an individual. Yeah, and I can imagine some of that slowly annoying wake-up period, which I'm sure your clients have when they talk to you and you suddenly go, holy crap, I really need to that's do pretty something. Mu- that's pretty much what I do in the world. I come yeah. in with my little bag and my lamp and, and yeah, blow your mind. And people <laughs> go a bit quiet and like, oh, my God, I really should have thought about this sooner. So, And I think um, that might be a really great place to leave this conversation, Laura. Thank you so much. We're going to put a link to the one-hour AppSec for all the developers out there who want to basically get proactive around their security. And uh, Laura, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. You've had an incredible journey and we certainly appreciate your input here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.